Black baby. Um, hold on. I okay. I want people to know about my wardrobe too because yes, we have some people joining us live in the chat. Um, I, I don't know how to work that. That's going to be your uh, section today. But I'm wearing jeans that uh, this is going to be more enjoyable for those who can't see me right now. So for the podcast listeners listening to on our streams afterwards, here's what happened. I was exiting my bathroom and left my drawers open. I don't, I live alone, so I can't blame it on anybody else, but I still try to. But anyway, I left a bathroom drawer open and I caught my pants, my jeans on the drawer, but like was moving so fast because I have no time for anything apparently that I, I caught my jeans and ripped them like a real good rip. And I instinctually, I really like these jeans. I was so upset. But for those who are actually watching right now, they this this was not originally like this. They were um, like maybe a centimeter less ripped. All of my knees are exposed. I bought these pants with giant rips. Why am I upset with the fact that I just ripped them even more? That was free. Anyway, let's get into this. <laughs> Yay! Hi, I figured out how to use the chat. (laughs) Congratulations. This is We're Totally Not Okay, the podcast about the intersection of mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. And I must be Justin Van Lee. Oh my God, that was the best intro I think we've ever pulled off. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, guys. I practice in the mirror every day. I'm impressed. And look, Thanks. we've got people who are also impressed here. And all of our <laughs> listeners afterwards on SoundCloud are too. I'm sure we're, we're going to move over into Periscope and you'll be paid lots and lots of monies. Yeah, excellent. Just for that one soundbite. Done, sold, <laughs> here we go. It's perfect. I am super excited that, okay, again, another thing that people cannot see yet, not even on our haps channel um there's more green to come our guest i can see has a green screen (laughs) and i am so excited about that fact not just because i want a green screen everything i am over the zoom backgrounds that you know are you only have a limited selection to choose from i want to be able to put whatever i want actually i just want like a still picture of me on zoom for my meetings from now on that looks like i'm actually present but just enjoying everything it's just me smiling (laughs) excellent so i guess without further ado let's bring on our guest for the day drum roll and unmute and click all the buttons because i'm running this for some reason it's dev (laughs) hello (laughs) all by myself I know, I'll bring it back. It's all good. (laughs) You are by yourself, but we are also by ourselves and we're all by ourselves together. That's how we are getting through. (laughs) That that is the condition, the general condition. That is the condition. But platforms like this bring us together. And this is actually the platform that brought us together, Dav. We met on another another channel, another episode. And on International Women's Day on International Women's Day. And what was so cool is that we 
I, I feel like just near the end of it, we started you and I sparking so hard and just realizing like, oh, we have so much more to talk about. So I'm so happy you're here. Why don't <laughs> well, we start by having you introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, uh, what you do, what your platforms are, what you typically talk about. I will do that. I will say only I'm so glad we did get to meet that day because I had inadvertently muted myself by knocking my microphone USB cord out of the laptop. And when I replaced it, I hadn't refreshed the screen. I was mute. I didn't know why nobody was responding to what I was saying. So I just went really quiet, like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not my place to talk here. <laughs> and then finally somebody pointed out, Dev's mouth is moving and she's not saying anything. And I was like, oh, but, but, and they're like, refresh your screen. I did it. And that was how we got that opportunity in the end to spark. And it was worth the wait. So I was I was so glad. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't yeah. realize. I thought you were just like politely being quiet and waiting until you had something with gumption to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm kind of glad. I think it made more of an impact that way. Like she waits and waits. She's one of those really thoughtful people who <laughs> formulates what she has to say and then out it comes. And the, the truth is far from that. I just talk constantly <laughs> but there was an element of politeness in that my mouth did stop moving when people weren't responding to me I was like okay I'll be I'll be uncustomarily quiet for a bit so yes so what do I do I am customarily quite noisy uh, I am from Australia I lived in Australia until fairly recently uh, and I was galvanized into action by the election of Donald Trump which I thought was going to happen after there was a San Bernardino shooting. Uh, and I thought terrorism would support that divide between sort of the masculine and feminine emotional divisions of labor in the United States in that some people say, hey, welcome and embrace migrants and tap into your inner compassion. And some people say, hey, look, global terrorism means we have to be more hard hearted and we should bandy around kind of fascist solutions like like Muslim bans. So the fact that Trump was prepared to propose that more hard-hearted and not really a genuine solution because you cannot expel all the migrants from the United States without unmaking the United States. But it's it's what people cling to sometimes in times of trouble. They sometimes lean into fascism. That's a function of human nature that sadly repeated itself over time and across nations. But anyway, that's what created my broadcasting because I went, oh, well, I'm the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor and I know the kind of slippery slope of fascism. Uh, and particularly when I saw an ad that the Trump campaign were producing, uh, I was like, people need to know the risks. And I held up a camera in front of my face and just told my, my grandmother's story and what I was concluding from that in relation to this modern context of, of Trumpism. And as I spoke, I was like this single solitary little tear ran down my cheek. And I thought, this will probably be picked up by the internet. And it was. <laughs> and half a million people watched that video. And then that gave me this American audience. And I was like, oh, maybe I should talk to them some more. And I didn't know how to do that but eventually people pointed me to the periscope technology which i availed myself of and broadcasted for about three years oh, wow. and then periscope announced it was closing down and 
I tried to gently dip my toes in the water of haps, the still or turbid waters of haps. So, yeah. Well, we're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. We Thank do you. have actually a comment from, I'm assuming somebody who does follow you on haps or follows you on some of your other platforms who says, uh, this is coming from Bob Kramer, says, Dav knows more about American politics than most Americans. And I mean, it does sound like some, especially because you have such passion that you needed to take a stand and speak about it, use your voice, which I love. Are you, do you focus only on or mainly on American politics or is it more of a global approach? It is, it is mainly a focus on American politics because I focused on the UK for a bit, but it was too sad. <laughs> it was too sad because they were too irrevocably stuck on this Brexit path. So now I mostly talk about American politics and I still engage intellectually with Australian politics and occasionally it bubbles out so that I'm like, guess what Americans, Australians are suffering under their own little mini Trump. Guess what they've gone and done now? And I'll just do one segment about what's happening in Australia and how it parallels the US, even though I know that not all of my listeners will be interested in that, but sometimes it just bubbles out because it'll be just so atrocious. And uh, yeah, I mean, Australia has been an inspiration for America in a lot of very destructive, cruel ways. Uh, we have migrants we've detained for seven years, two children have been detained for, for three years, uh, and we and we shocked Trump. We shocked Trump at the beginning of his tenure. I think we wouldn't have shocked him by the end, but uh, he was originally like, oh, no, if you're detaining the migrants, then they must have committed a crime. These must be criminals. And the Australian prime minister was like, uh, no, no, they haven't committed a crime. We just we just detain them. That's that's just what we do. Uh, so, yes, American politics. I've immersed myself in learning about it. And I overcome any lack of confidence from the fact that I wasn't raised there and wasn't educated there by saying, look, anything that I can learn, that's something I bring to the table, which is a curiosity and an interest in learning and a lack of uh, arrogance about my American knowledge. I'm proud of it. It's kind of new and fresh, but <laughs> I'm not that attached to my own opinion. I can be educated with facts. And that's, that's a plus. I love that. That's uh, especially because you're using the word curious, because I think with the um, enter the entertainment aspect, as far as the American politics system has been running, especially with those past four years and who was in, in seat. I don't know why I have such an issue even saying his name, but <laughs> still. It's Voldemort. He's the Voldemort of modern politics. <laughs> he is. And you make these beautiful analogies. And the fact that you're able to find those analogies from um, within Australian politics as well it's almost, I, I feel like it's an opportunity for you to be able to bring to light Australian politics with those analogies, being able to be analogous with the, because they, and when I say they, I mean uh, American political system is so prevalent these days and has become such a worldwide hot topic. It's, it's almost, it's nice to be able to know that there are those ties that you can jump into to be able to, uh, uh, not necessarily push back, but you know, still bring light to what's still happening around the world in other countries. Yeah. 
yeah, provoke thought through the art of comparative politics or, or comparative civics even of how do things work in Australia, not to imagine that things are necessarily unique to the US because people in the US are often afflicted with exceptionalism, be it either America's exceptionally perfect or America's exceptionally terrible. So it's good sometimes to have points for comparison with other nations just to mitigate against that tendency to absolutize everything to do with America. So before we keep going, I actually pulled up the clip from Twitter and I'd love to play it for everyone who's watching slash listening. I know it's embarrassing. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. No, 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 um, no, it's fine, it's fine. I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I'll, excellent. Yeah. Here we yeah. go. Hi, America. Mm -hmm. Saturday, the GOP released an attack ad saying Democrats who stand in our way will be complicit in every murder committed by illegal immigrants, which means now more than ever, it's time for descendants of survivors of the Holocaust to tell their story and what we know of how this starts. My grandmother, when she was 16 years old, was made to jump out of a carriage on a train by her parents because they knew where the train was going. And her story weighs on me heavily in these moments as we see scenes in America, such as these attack ads and the doctor from Poland, my parents, my grandmother's country, where a doctor was arrested after decades of residence in the, U in the US of A with a green card and a solid history of contribution to his community and service as a doctor in an emergency ward with government agents boarding a bus in Fort Lauderdale today, asking passengers for proof of citizenship. These are even Uh-oh, I think it froze. So it wasn't playing to the end there, it froze for some reason. Oh, yeah, and I'm, I was not ready to come back because I'm like ready to drop tears of my own. Uh, part of me kind of wants to be like, Dav, please reenact the rest of it. But people can go to your Twitter and actually see that because I think that's your pinned tweet, is it not? Yeah, it is. It's my pinned And we'll tweet. add it. We'll add it to the show notes for anyone listening to this in podcast format. And I'm putting in the comments, comments for everyone on HAPS right now. Yeah, yeah, this is something that, uh, I mean, having met you on International Women's Day and not knowing at first that your mic was frozen and thinking, oh, like maybe maybe she's a little bit shy and uh, <laughs> doesn't really talk much. And then I went over to your page, we, ch we chatted a little bit at the end once your mic came on and instantaneously connected. And then I went to your Twitter page and started looking at the things that you talk about and the work that you do and watching that. I mean, I feel like I'm at a better place to be able to play it for for me watching it in front of people watching me watching it. But uh, I lost it. I lost it watching. I I sat on my floor by myself for a little bit, just just trying to take that in. And again, I kind of want to go back to the idea that how profoundly you know you, you even affected me but how profoundly you have are affecting people around the world to not only 
be aware of the kind of knowledge that you can bring to about their own country if they're tuning in from America. Um, but to learn about stories that we have never been privy to, that we've never, uh, even your own personal story that we would not have known had you not shared that, that well, stories can connect us. Yeah. Oh, did you say takes an amount of confidence? It does. It does. Yeah. And even though I kind of abandoned my former career by the wayside, because I was a, um, I was just starting an academic career. I was a lecturer for two years at a university, and then I moved with my family. And I just took that as an opportunity to to be even more obsessive with American politics. And I don't mean to say obsessive in a disparaging way, actually. I'll just say more, more US-centric uh, because it felt like a calling, that this was a moment for us to share our stories. This was a yep. moment for us to make those connections and to mobilise opposition to what was happening because that kind of thing has an impetus to it. It spirals. There's a, a inherent darkness in human nature that's part of our, our own self-protective instincts, that we are ready to demonize others if we have to do battle with an army. I mean, soldiers have to overcome so much socialized training to not kill or harm others. And then when you send them into battle, they just have to get over that and be ready to, to take other people's lives. And when you have fascism, fascism is a system of emotional manipulation that makes people battle ready at an emotional level. It just keeps disparaging others to just unwind all of that social conditioning to say, be kind, don't, don't harm others, don't condone harming others. So you get so much tolerance of harm when there's been an exploitative fascistic style demagogue in office. And I had this moment where I just cried last year um, it was quite cathartic, but it was it was me going, oh, maybe I didn't succeed with what I was trying to do, that I was trying to prevent death in America. And then there was all of this COVID-related death that I saw as being the product of, of one man's uh, willful willful sabotage of a, of a government response to a pandemic which requires leadership. So... The tears were good and helped me process the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm not responsible for COVID death and I was never single-handedly responsible for defeating Trump, but that I had always wanted to be part of, of the group efforts and that I believed that by doing what I did, even in this relatively small way I did it, was there to be a beacon to others, to say, do what you can, speak up when you can, tell your own stories, find relevant parts of your own experience, even if it's I mean, I'm not a Holocaust survivor myself. I'm the granddaughter, but I was trying to signal to people, bring whatever you have to the table because we need to make a conscious effort to humanise ourselves and, and reassure ourselves that we don't need to go down that route. We don't, it's not safe to follow a fascist into battle, as it were. Interestingly enough, um, my family is German, and so there have also been a lot of conversations about the Holocaust. Is that something that your grandmother actually openly spoke about with you, or is it something that you recently discovered and dove back through it? Like, how did you actually come to identify and hold on to that story? She spoke about it a lot in yeah. the context mostly of... Um, trying to tell me to work harder at school <laughs> so we, oh. we knew it was part of her life very much yeah uh, and 
she would just use it like, uh, you know, study your times tables because the, the Nazis tried to kill me, but they couldn't take my knowledge. Or if mm. I was an adolescent not getting on with my mother, she would say, the Nazis were beating my mother and I stood in front of them and said, beat me instead. Um, mm. And I'd go, ah, that's, <laughs> that's quite heavy, Nana, but I'm still not deterred from wanting to argue with my own mother. So it was, it was this full on thing, but then I also had educational exposure to it because my, uh, my scripture teacher at, at primary school brought this book of pictorial evidence of Nazi atrocities to our mm -hmm. primary school class and was like, see, here are the pictures of, of the like, pits of, of dead bodies yeah. and, and emaciated naked women with fully clothed Nazi guards gazing at them. So I was always kind of immersed in it. And I didn't know that much details of my grandmother's story, but she told me parts of it. Um, she told me parts of just the escape parts, which tend to be more positive. Uh, and also that when she was hungry, she had eaten absolutely anything she could uh, yeah. so that I knew that, you know, life persists and that, and that it took her spirit to kind of, uh, persevere in those circumstances. But when she got dementia, then I became really afraid that I was going to learn a lot more detail that I'd kind of avoided because people yeah. had always said, oh, you need a tape recorder and you need to go and let your grandma tell her full story and record it. And yeah. as an adolescent, I was like, I am terrified of that. I am terrified of hearing more of my grandmother's pain. It's mm -hmm. already this big weight I carry that I can, I'm never supposed to misbehave or or I have to get good grades because of everything she suffered. And it's this pressure. <laughs> I didn't want yeah. to know more. But now, I, I mean, obviously, I have that regret the way all people regret that they didn't fully engage with somebody else's story. But yeah. I do know. I do know some. Yes. That's amazing. It's actually know? me. Oh, go ahead, Gil. I, I was going to say, um, especially because you mentioned seeing a, you know, a picture book that validated the stories that you knew were true about the violence. And it, it also make, makes me think of, um, you know, once we started having not just radio broadcasts, but television broadcasts that started broadcasting that information about what was happening in war times, Vietnam War, and, and having, say, Americans actually learn what troops were doing or uh, on ground or for anyone around, just as an example, anyone around the world, but in wartime, now we have, and it's faster than ever because of social media, because mm -hmm. of all of the platforms that we can connect on and have these conversations and show that proof, uh, which let's not move yet into the territory of, you know, how that proof can be uh, manipulated. <laughs> but, but the idea of having images validate those stories and spread those stories I guess I have a twofold question. One, did you feel that having that kind of knowledge and, and having that impact you in a way, that that's something that drove you to want to also be a storyteller on these visual, audiovisual mediums? And, and then the flip side, because you were talking about having that fear of recording or listening to more of your your grandmother's stories, like there, you are a vessel and that is a, an emotional, again, confidence or a capacity or a courage that is, that is necessitated in order to be able to be that vessel to pass that along. I'm wondering, did that drive you? And 
And how do you feel about being that vessel? Is there something that impedes you or makes you afraid from moving forward with that work? It's, it's a vessel that drives me. And I will say supplemented by an article I read, I think in 2017, that said people are often convinced more when they hear a voice and see a face than they are by the written word. So that some psychologist, you know, did one of those aspirationally empirical studies where they had groups of people and some people just got to read an article from a politician whose views they may or may not have agreed with uh, and then also heard a speech. But the, the conclusion was, the finding was, that it was more persuasive to see a human, to hear a human voice and to see a human. So that convinced me that what was needed was storytelling. And I've always been a bit performative and I think the act of lecturing gave me that confidence to say, do you know what, whatever questions people throw at me or challenges people throw at me, if I don't know, I say I don't know. And if they're critical or rude, I'm like, well, I, I'm in the chair here, I'm broadcasting, so I have the status and the power. And dealing with trolls and dealing with um, challenges of that nature, they give you more confidence as the more you do it. The more oh, wow. you dismiss trolls and the more you say, well, what you're saying isn't relevant to me or your criticisms are just a function of you being bored and trying to seek status for yourself at my expense, I'm not going to facilitate that transaction. <laughs> you can't have any of my status. Uh, so that begins to feel more like a decision that is made in internally. And that's that's very empowering. That does sound like, I mean... I think that this is a differentiation between of of character because it, again it comes back to that idea of you have such a passionate heart that it perhaps that's what keeps you going because I think that there are others out there who might be dismayed by the trolls um, or even just thinking about um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today that was speaking about fascists and making an equivocation to uh, Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, the biblical story, and how the the character of of Cain exists. Like all you have to do, you don't even have to go further than the YouTube comments that exist today to recognize that that part exists in humanity. And that idea of um, I, I don't I don't like to you know read those comments or I, I do have a fear of, of those sorts of reviews and I try to stay away from that and I try to use social media as um, a place to to connect with others and have progressive conversations democratic debates but but you know that means that you also need to open up a space that is going to be inviting to those on the other side of the coin. It makes you vulnerable, but you gain strength when you learn that you have the power to describe them and dismiss them. When you're the creator and you're the content creator, you have the power. So we might fear trolls because, you know, if we have a lot of them, if everybody hates you in, say, your profession as, as an actress, as an actor and creator, you're like, oh, the trolls might have some relevance to my work, so maybe you have some concern that you have to listen to them, but really you don't. And the more you describe them, the more you go, I'm, I'm shaping the narrative. And that in turn can shape my emotional response because I diminish you in the same way that you seek to diminish me, but I'm doing so in a rational basis. Like if they approach you and they're irrationally saying, oh, you look like a man or you have nothing valuable to add, those I guess it helps that I talk about fashion, fascism as well, because I know that's my 
my demographic and that I don't want to get locked into an adversarial battle as if we're equals. I want to diminish their ideology and I want to say they've become attached to bad ideas. Uh, so it's always my goal as well to say, to, to promote a way of human engagement that doesn't involve belittling people too much. <laughs> I belittle trolls sometimes. So call me a hypocrite and hang me out to dry. But I, I belittle trolls a little bit. But overall, my intent is to say not to get stuck. And I, I tend to use the Rwanda uh, example there, which I shouldn't really because I'm not that historically familiar with it, but I understand that there was this tribal elements. There were Hutus and Tutsis and, and the language was escalating and they were um, calling people from one tribe cockroaches. And I was like, well, that reminds me of what I know of Nazi Germany and calling Jewish people vermin, that when you engage in that, even if it's retaliatory, you're helping progress that dynamic. So you need to keep calling people out when they're when they're undermining the social fabric and they're taking that path towards nihilistic violence that just destroys. But what you need to do is paint a convincing picture for them that highlights the nihilism of that violence because it's often painted to them as protectiveness. You're protecting your society from the Jews and their communism and mm -hmm. the fact that they will sell you out to the bankers and that will destroy your society. You have to be you have to meet their strength with your own strength. And that's hard because good people are often rendered passive and quiet in the face of noisy, loud, um, belittling behavior. And they're like, oh, I don't want to engage with that. So I guess at this point I would say there's a Yeats poem. Um, oh, you're bringing up Yeats, I love this. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, the Irish poet who was quite into British sensibilities, but he he wrote a poem after waking up from a nightmare of the apocalypse. And in the apocalypse, there's a lot of resemblance to all international conflict or, or national conflict. And the line is, um, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. So he was describing the, the preconditions for badness, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. And I was like, okay, thanks, Yates. <laughs> I will meet the moment with my own passionate intensity and try to be a light to others to say, meet the moment. And lots of Americans have, regardless of whether or not they've encountered me, they understood that this was a moment that required passionate intensity. Would you, you say that, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Justin. <laughs> I was gonna ask, would you say that your, your attempt to try to be a beacon to all these people and to try to change the narrative and take control of that, would you say that that has helped you deal with the trauma of your grandmother's past? Mm. And, and if that actually helps your family deal with it as well, not just you? It definitely doesn't help my family because they think I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's quite funny because, not my funny tragedy, um, in the iteration of fascism under Trump, uh, Muslim people are more likely to be the scapegoat. Yep. And my grandmother's quite likely to have wanted to join with that in terms of scapegoating Muslims. So she she died a number of years ago, um, nearly 10 years ago. But uh, I, I have been scared watching Trump and gone, oh, what if my family had all liked him? 
<laughs> that would have been awful. Uh, I had family members who did, and I spent a lot of energy trying to fix them. <laughs> My gosh, <laughs> uh, I ultimately did. Uh, a bit I was helped by circumstances, but at the same time, you can play a role. Uh, so my father was like, you know, Trump's just a good businessman trying to get ahead. Like, you know, everybody's just trying to bring him down and, and he's just tr trying to help America. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I've got a lot of problems with that dad, but also my, my dad's not Jewish, but he married my mother who yep. is was Jewish. And and I was like, you, you married a Jewish woman, you have a Jewish daughter, so you have a little bit of a responsibility to engage with what I'm telling you because I'm telling you this is a repetition of, of the descent into fascism in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so just listen to some of these arguments. And he did, but he would also just have an explanation that ended up being... Trumpy and uh, various pundits warned me. They were like, once Trump is defeated, those people will all be like, I never supported Trump. <laughs> and my dad was exactly the same. Like, like, no, 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 I was just playing devil's advocate and putting up alternate points of view. And I'm like, dad, dad, that's not what happened. Like we had arguments where I would cry and cry. <laughs> that was not mere devil's advocacy play games. I was like grotesquely upset. That, that my father was taking this position. But I was still like, how can I go out there and broadcast and say, help help um, recruit voters and help mobilize society and help defeat Trump if I can't address it in my own family? So in a way that was kind of like a, a white person's task in America of saying, let's not just accept our relatives being lost to an ideology that they think is helpful, that they think mm -hmm. is coming from a, a just a, an endorsement of the status quo and of course the status quo is good so trump's president just let him be don't be too critical of him that's being all negative and and ragey and i was like yeah it is a bit ragey but there's cause and then stuff happens and COVID happens and it became a little more evident to my dad actually my dad started to get with the program more when a lot of people were arrested from trump's campaign Mm -hmm. So Manafort was arrested and then he was like, okay, you know what, maybe I have to concede that my daughter was right. He said that at Christmas two years ago and I was like, that's the best Christmas present ever, Dad. <laughs> um, yeah, and then Bill Barr came out and was like, oh, no, no, Mueller just meant to say that Trump's innocent of everything. And my dad was like, well, well. And I was like, don't don't go back towards the dark, Dad. Stay with me. <laughs> and he he. He did. I guess he was enough. He'd renounced Trump enough by that point that he could stay with the the logical consistency of at least accepting that it was okay to criticize him because people dig themselves into a defensive hole as well. And that's the downside of broadcasting, which is you do occasionally have those moments where you go, am I even helping because mm. just all my passion and my broadcasting, is that just contributing to further pushing Trumpists away? But I'm I'm able to sort through that and go, no, those people definitely have an appetite for lies because they want to protect themselves from the reality that they supported a sociopathic criminal con man person. That's definitely, I think, part of the appetite for QAnon. There's a lot of people who are very hostile to reality right now, mm -hmm. um, very motivated self-deluders. But uh, as always, I'm trying to unpack their ideas and not just attack the people. So what do you actually think are the best things 
to do in those situations. I know I have a lot of friends in America and they always the famous thing of we go home for Thanksgiving and everyone just ends up arguing about politics. What are actually the most constructive things that you can do in those situations to try and help two individuals kind of see eye to eye and understand where each other are coming from without making it so emotional and, and kind of trolly or digging yourself into that, into that um, mindset? That's a, that's a big question because I've tried a lot of different approaches. It's like my life has been an experiment on how to handle that because yep. I've brought a lot of emotion to the table and I've held tight onto the idea of don't provide social lubrication for people who are aligning themselves with evil. <laughs> like don't smile or hang out with people who you know are Trump, unless you really have to. You're like, oh, they're my dying mother and I, I, I can't just cut her off in her final moments, moments or years. Yeah. Um, but, but some people adopt a different technique and they keep those people on board. I mean, I didn't cut off my dad. I was kind of like, if people are already on your social outskirts, you can keep moving them away. Like you can consign them in a mental sense to an even more outward concentric circle. Like, but that's one thought. I didn't, I didn't want people to be part of making it normal, normalizing fascism by just treating your neighbors and friends as if everything's fine because it's not fine. But at the same time, sometimes you can be a little bit of an anchor to an alternate reality. So I guess it depends on your dynamic. If you think arguing with people you know is just something they enjoy doing because they enjoy the combative nature of contradicting you and saying, no, no, you're, you're full of Trump derangement syndrome, then they're getting off on that argument and you shouldn't mm -hmm. do it. You should back away from them. But if you think someone's reasonable enough to respond to something pragmatic, because pragmatic details are often what rescues people, research has shown that what's made the biggest difference to, to basically experiment subjects that social researchers have tried to say, what can we say to persuade people to stop supporting Trump? The most effective thing was undermining his origin story of showing them evidence that he wasn't the self-made man he told people he was. Mm -hmm. So financial details, uh, which is, explains why Trump was so protective of his tax returns, I guess, knowing that evidence of, of fraud and swindling taxpayers and the government um, might help, although there seem to have been lots of Trump supporters who were able to reconcile evidence of tax fraud to themselves and they're like, he's just smart. But I guess mm -hmm. I guess the idea is you show them enough evidence or, or mm -hmm. you don't expect to, to fix everybody, you expect to just fray the edges of Trump support. You get enough mm -hmm. people understanding that he is effectively a con man swindling the American public and simultaneously exposing them to danger on a lot of fronts, then then you get enough converts to have built, to have mobilized a critical mass of voters who then voted him out. And that happened. And we did that. And I say we because I'm damn well including myself in that after three years of broadcasting. <laughs> I have a question then about your broadcasting and the way that you do, uh, because you are so public about your opinion and because you're also very public about sharing your personal journeys, for example, your conversations that you have with your father and how the conflicts do live very close to home, which I think is an important thing to acknowledge, especially if you are inviting conversation that is offering a space to heal. And you come from a place from, from of curiosity. And I think that that absolutely helps lubricate conversation to feel like um, 
you're not being pedantic about your opinion. Uh, but because it's fragile, fragile territory, it's sensitive matters that we're dealing with, especially some of the comments that we're seeing even today, right now in our chat boxes on HAPS, um, we have a, a comment from someone who said that they cut, uh, I cut one of my brothers off because of it. I think he's referring to, because we're talking about um, cutting people off who have politically different opinions. Uh, I cut my brothers off because of it, and now I'm torn about it since his death from COVID. So these are tumultuous times, and this is making me think of even just my own personal conversations with people who are close to me. I have a friend who is a Trump supporter, and I have always I, I've been friends with them for quite some time, and we have always had very heated political debates. And I say heated, but not necessarily, I, I don't always feel like we're, we're making much progress, but we do care for one another enough that we, we don't hold our political systems against one another. And that doesn't deter us from being friends, which I, I think that's also a reason why I still have them as a friend in my life, because they're open enough and loving enough to recognize me and respect me, but we haven't reached a point of being able to bridge our differences politically. And when we do try to address, particularly when we try to address conversations about Trump, I said it, um, most of the time, the, the, I, because I'm sincerely curious, I want to know how somebody has walked into that, how they got to that point, to that belief system, how they did, because some people not only are, um, looking to safeguard because they feel maybe ashamed and they didn't support him, but were too afraid to step out of those bounds. Uh, some people sincerely do support him. And I am so curious. I want to know how somebody gets to that point. But most of the time with this particular friend, his retorts to any points that I make are typically snippets from Fox News segments. And there's no explanation as to why he even believes what is like, there's no conversation. It's just, I'm like, great, I, I could have watched that. And that doesn't help me understand how you got to this belief system. So this also makes me think of you saying that you will tell someone not to appease, you know, the trolls. Don't smile. It makes me think of when, um, I'm sorry to pigeonhole construction workers this way, but it's just happened enough time that I've had construction workers, you know, say, smile, honey, as I'm walking by. And you, it does make me think, no, I don't want to appease you. I don't owe that smile to you. So I understand where you're coming from as far as not giving into appeasing or making it easier for someone who is just being a troll. But how do you, you've spoken a little bit about how you create a democratic conversation on your platforms, but how do you navigate, um, do, do you also try to create space that feels comfortable enough to have someone who has such an opposing political ideology feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and open, which I think is necessary if they are going to experience any kind of change, any kind of mindset change? That's a, a very interesting question. I'm going to reply to it in two parts. One with the trolls that visit my page. It's always a learning curve. I know I've derived conf confidence from refuting them, but at the same time, they're very distracting to my audience because if they come to my page, they're not coming because they're ready to be vulnerable. They're coming performatively to, to dance on a liberal. 
uh, and, and make interjections and repeat their Fox points or their Breitbart talking points, their conviction levels are very high. So they're coming to play and to, to gratify themselves and to light up the reward centres in their limbic system, they're, they're not there to be vulnerable. So even though I've sometimes indulged them in order to be kind of critical and diminish them and, and so reclaim my power because they're starting a power dynamic, they'll, they'll turn up to insult me or insult my opinions and I'll be like, well, your opinions are wrong for this reason. Uh, but it still is always a yanking away from whatever I was talking about before they made their appearance. So sometimes they're just quite happy to have, you know, been able to pull your pigtail in the playground in that way. They're, they're, they're rewarded by attention. So fundamentally, I don't claim to run a democratic broadcast that allows for every opinion because some opinions are only popping up like, like whack-a-moles to be whacked out of the space because they're, they're not there to contribute constructively. They're, they're just there to, uh, to thumb their nose at, at rational discourse with whatever ir irrational piece of disinformation they've brought over from HAPS, not from HAPS, from FOX, from FOX, from Breitbart, from OAN, from Newsmax, from that very, um, very effective media machine that, uh, that promotes fascism in the US around the world because it's convenient, because it supports the, the profit margins of petrochemical oligarchs who want democracies to be undermined so that they can have an underpaid workforce who, who can't muster up the collective political will to, to advocate for climate action or, or any of the critical problems that we actually need to address as a society. So I'm like, ah, oh, you're the Legion people from the disinformation unit, from the psychological influence campaign that's that's working to harm humanity. So no, I, I don't want to foreground you and I don't want to give in to my own impulses to even engage with you. So I have all these moderators who used to help on Periscope and they would just block or mute somebody straight away for saying things like Trump 2020. If they chanted slogans, they were gone. If they asked a question, they were sometimes allowed to remain on for a bit, but then people would start going, oh, they're distracting you. And I'd be like, yes, they are. Do you know what? That's enough of a rabbit hole. Sometimes it was good to activate passion. They'd come on and say, you know, you just want to kill babies. And I'd say, oh, what a great opportunity to talk about reproductive rights and how it's actually very deadly to women in, in all the nations where they don't have reproductive rights, that women are more likely to, to die um, not only from uh, botched abortions, but they're more likely, far more likely to take their own life because if women don't have access to um, to contraception or or abortion, they're more likely to take their own lives because women don't want to be part of that. They don't want to be part of bringing a life into the world when they are not in a place where they can feed or support or get doctors tr and medical treatment or anything for an innocent child. Uh, so yes I'll, I'll go off on a, on a reproductive choice rant that I think is apropos for my audience to hear but at the same time there's, there's lots of factors to consider and the only other thing I wanted to say about construction workers was I can imagine smiling at a construction worker who told me to smile because I feel it's important to not get locked into a, an adversarial power dynamic where they say do something and then on purpose you don't do it just because they've told you to do that. 
like like children going, I won't do my homework because you told me to do it and I'm asserting my autonomy. It's like, oh, well, actually homework's good. So you could perversely smile when someone told you to smile because, because they don't get to control your reaction either way. They don't get to tell you to smile, but they don't get to dampen your own organic smiles because maybe you feel like smiling and maybe you want to smile out of, you know what, I can't. I have the freedom to smile just at the ridiculousness of your behaviour, that, that you that your life is is so full of physical labour and you don't get enough intellectual stimulation that you have to engage in psychological games with passers-by to try and impose um, power over them. So, yeah, just saying. I absolutely adore not only your ability to pivot in conversations, but the, <laughs> the, the power with which you do so, the way in which you do not give away your power. And I, I think that that is something, especially because we are a podcast that speaks about mental health and how it is affected by the ways in which we consume our media and the ways in which we produce our media because it's cyclical, putting the messages out there and the way that we're continually bombarded with the messages that already exist. I and and what came to mind I want to ask you one more question before we get into our two truths and a lie <laughs> because you have such a a sense of strength and compassion and your tweet earlier today was saying that you are um I can't remember exactly where you how you put it but you didn't exactly call yourself a journalist you said that you are like journalistic-y or <laughs> but you didn't quite <laughs> that label and because we have less barriers to entry to be able to be part of the conversation which is a beautiful thing and yes it's a double-edged sword because that means there are a lot more voices that even uh somebody somebody in the comments who i think is a regular viewer of of yours said the one thing that i i'll miss about periscope which is a platform that you used to um regularly broadcast on is playing whack-a-troll on Dav's podcast. <laughs> so, you know, they pop up. It's cool to have, uh, you, you have such a powerful voice that you have collected um, a community around you of like-minded people who are wanting to be part of that democratic discussion. Um, you don't necessarily need or seek the validation of having that title or badge of a journalist to be able to do the work. And... I'm wondering if you have any tips or tricks for, uh, and I hate to call them tips or tricks, but how do you take care of yourself? Because it, mm. you are also human and this must have an effect. The amount of reach you have, the amount of impact, I can only imagine that you also feel that in return. And that's not something that I think always feels great. Is there something that you do to take care of yourself so that you can keep your cup full to keep giving to others? What keeps my cup full is probably viewing my current life circumstances as a, as a upward slanting journey, that I am given the opportunity every day to rehearse power dynamics in which I reclaim my power. And I see that as very important as a woman because when you're socialised to please others, and I think women are socialised from being a baby because the minute somebody tells you you're pretty and they smile at you and you smile back and you accept that exchange, that social reward, you go, okay, that's addictive. I'll get more of that in my life. And I 
tell my son he's beautiful as well now because I want to have I want him to have some of that socialization but not too much of it because it creates vulnerability you get so many women going out there whose psyches are easy to disrupt because they want to please people so all you have to do is neg them and say oh you're not that pleasing you're not attractive you're not useful and they will recoil and say oh i have to retreat into this self-questioning space where i go what's wrong with me why aren't i pleasing people and it's like nope let's copy men's power in that regard we don't have to aspire to take it from them or or pull them down and be negative about men we can just say let's have what they have <laughs> in, in a harry met sally orgasm sense i'll have what she's having i'll have what he's having so all my day-to-day -day broadcasts are actually self-sustaining in that every day i interact with people i feel if I've made an improvement or if I need more improvement to go, how do I keep my power and how do I keep myself from being undermined? So you know what? I'm glad you asked me because now I'm like, maybe I do need to schedule some more conscious efforts, <laughs> <laughs> conscious efforts to uh, preserve my, my own psychological integrity. I think I've muddled through for these years because it's been inherently reinforcing for clearly an undertapped part of myself that's a performer and something I really took from my first meeting with you was I think you referenced yourself as a creative and I was like ah oh, I'm not comfortable adopting the term journalist because quite a lot of the time I'm attacking uh, modern journalistic attachment to to bipartisanship which I will say is is dangerously full of false equivalency and is is actually a big component of, of the passive precondition creating for fascism when we when journalists are too eager to say one side said this the other side said this and give them equal footing which privileges liars and people who act in bad faith so i was really taken by that term creative and i was like oh I, i'm gonna do that i'm a i'm gonna start referencing myself as a creative i'm a content generator i'm not a journalist because i comment on journalism so i'm a i'm a freelance Analyst, do you know what? I don't have a term for myself yet. I'm brainstorming that. Everybody's welcome to pitch in if they know me and they, they want to describe what I do. I don't entirely know, but I know that I'm here and that I'm very compelled to be here for people. So I have um, Patreons who would pay me a monthly sum and that would help me get up every day and go, <laughs> even if it's a dollar a day, I'm like, I'm getting paid to do this. So not only is it my compulsion from an ethical sense, there are people out there who depend on seeing me on a regular basis and, and hearing what I have to say because I have that privilege to not be in America. I don't have always the same emotional drain of being ruled by Trump during during that era. I could at least bring a freshness to it of I sympathise with your pain and and I feel some of it. I feel like the world is at risk because of Trump being in office. So I share some of your existential dread but I also don't have to read that today the leader of my country has just separated some more children from parents. So I have a little bit of emotional bucket that I can share. So I've, I've always tried to replenish my own bucket through service. That's one way. I think this is also, I mean, the more that I listen to you, the more that I realize what that immediate recognition of, um, 
likeness that I found in you when, when we started chatting on International Women's Day, there was a resonance that I hadn't quite put my finger on, but I think it's in the same regard that you, because I am resistant to labels, and I mean, it, it's kind of a running joke that I make people uh, introduce themselves on our podcast because I have such a hang up. Um, and, and I don't even like to use the word hang up because I think that I can find a higher vibration word, but the <laughs> labels in general, the fact that you don't, you, you don't really bother actually accepting that term and you just keep going ahead and doing the work anyway, which let me say in the entertainment world is so refreshing because there are many people out there who do call themselves actors and writers and filmmakers and they're hopping on platforms like this or Clubhouse and running rooms to say that they know how to make 10 deals in a day with Netflix, but they've made like not even a full short film. Anyways, I won't rant on that right now. <laughs> but I love the fact that you are doing the work that is um, traditionally understood to be journalistic work, that journalists were they were supposed to be holding politicians' feet to the fire. They were supposed to be grilling the gatekeepers. And we are moving into more and more of this weird meta world, an onion layer after layer of them becoming what they are trying to fight against. And the fact that you are doing that work, but seemingly not not falling into similar traps um I, I can't really think of another way of putting it but there are I, I also understand that there is this uh or at least traditionally speaking again this necessity to um get the ratings and so we do see a dichotomized media landscape mm -hmm. and we have opportunities now with these sorts of platforms and because barriers are lowered to not necessarily fall into those traps and not do it for the likes and do it for the views and do it for the eyeballs. And you just keep bringing it back to the point, to the, the issues that you know need to be addressed, which is refreshingly egoless. I adore it. <laughs> but I'm privileged. It's from a place of privilege as well, uh, that I'm not as driven to do the deals and to get the eyeballs because of the money that I'm, I'm operating from this privileged position in that I'm essentially an unemployed housewife. <laughs> not just, that's not a label that has a lot of vibration, but, <laughs> but I, I have to acknowledge that. Praise aside for what I do and my commitment to, to being out there and, and putting out a voice to not only just hear myself talk, but to galvanize others as a, as a goal to say deputize yourself this is a critical moment i'm here like like the resistance radio in in france and just to say let's work together with what we can do and what's what have we found to be most effective and what's what are the issues of the day we need to stay abreast of but that yes that i am still privileged enough that my husband earns enough money to put food on the table for us and and I think with Trump fascism, with the, the capital riots and things like that, he's, he's looked quite indulgently on, on the fact that I devote so much of my time to this. Like, yes, I make lunches, but I also walk around reading about American politics on, on Twitter and, I, and, and then I sit down in a corridor. This is literally a corridor and the screen is like a privacy screen so that if my family members need to walk naked behind me, they can. 
<laughs> and they won't be on on the internet forever. Uh, That's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my duty. But uh, yeah, so there's there's still ego to it in that um, I hope when I move to America because my husband's got a job there and he's working there now just very very remotely some people are working remotely my husband's working other continent remotely uh but that when we go there i'll be able to find something so then at that point you might start to to go oh her conversation has become more about deals but probably not because i'm not very practical and i'm still going to be a very heart on my slave person but at some point it would be great to be to have enough of a label that i could attract a, a an income that contributed to my family. In the meantime, I attract an income that's great as a signifier to say, you owe them Dovecat, you get back on there and you turn that microphone on and you keep talking to the people because they're waking up every day and turning on the radio to hear the resistance. And you're part of that. And and I am grateful to have felt part of the international community of people trying to raise the alarm because some of the media has done that. I, I, when you were making the point about they were supposed to hold their feet to the fire, the people in power, I was thinking, well, they've they did they did that a bit. They didn't do it enough. Uh, we wanted them to do more, but they did it enough to help at least galvanize some white suburban voters to mm. turn away from the Republican Party. They did enough so that black people in America all understood the threat and I guess they didn't really need the media for that they they were always going to be galvanized by Trump in, in office but but the white people who helped any white people who donated to Stacey Abrams fair fight campaign any any people who changed what they did ordinarily to drive that record-breaking turnout for Joe Biden who who saved the US essentially not that the US is completely saved but if you look at Brazil, comparatively speaking, and how their COVID cases are so out of control and their hospital systems um, under such threat of collapse because they still have a Trump in office, a Trump equivalent in office, then you go, yes, we, we did something. We've got Biden and Biden's rolling out the vaccine and yay. <laughs> We have a, a couple of comments on here that are referring to that um, and also just supporting the work that you do do and how a lot of your fans know you are making you're planning on making the jump over to to America and wanting to not only uh, nominate you have nominated you for a TED talk. Um, they're they're throwing out some labels for you that maybe maybe you will or won't to accept. You could be an analyst, you could be a journal journalist. Uh, I that one's gonna be hard to roll off the tongue. I, I don't know about that one yet. Um, I get where they're going though. I like that. And that uh, people are gonna be voting for you if and when you run for office. <laughs> this is beautiful. Fantastic. I love my followers. <laughs> love the love in the comments. That's awesome. Well, I think it's also a reflection of the work that you do. The people, it's sort of that same mentality as, you know, if you want to know who somebody is, take a look at their five closest friends. And you take a look at the people who are following you, who are here on our show and commenting because they know you and they support you and they're interested in the things that you have to share and say. I am so fascinated also with the fact that you, you're not shy about where you're coming from when you're speaking, whether it is something that 
is a personal story about your grandmother, about your heritage, about where uh, what your lineage is, where you come from in that sense, in those regards, or being able to say something like, I'm privileged. I don't have to work for an income in order to be able to have a voice in these conversations, which I absolutely resonate with. I, I have this, I, I have that feeling of guilt that uh, I think it's also something I'm looking for a higher vibration to understand for myself. <laughs> but um, even earlier today, I saw a tweet that said, I'm just so tired about, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm just so tired of, uh, about um, being having people's lives depend on whether or not someone's having a bad day, referencing shootings and referencing racism yes and and there was part of me immediately my reaction was to want to jump on board and retweet it and and put my voice out there that i am also tired and i'm like oh i'm tired yeah absolutely i have a and it made me feel guilty i felt guilty that i was tired because I'm still alive and I can be tired and what like I, I could just sit at home and not say anything about this or I could just tweet not to dismantle this tweet because again I think every voice counts and that's the whole point of having democratic discussions but there was just this this sense in me that also stopped me from even hitting send because I couldn't even walk all the way around that thought I couldn't I, I couldn't I haven't quite been able to understand um, how my guilt sits with that and how I can still use my voice. But I do know that I don't want all of that, that uh, confusion or fear or how tired I am about these things happening to stop me from getting back up and being a phoenix that rises and being able to even just use my privilege to speak on platforms that people want to connect with and have these conversations and even just shift the needle a little bit. So I'm so grateful that we have you as a guest on here. Is there anything else that you want to say before we move on to yes. the... Okay, go ahead. Yes, I'll say one final thing that was inspired by your comment, and that's a key driver of fascism is people who can't process modern developments, people who can't process history well, people who are afraid that they're being undermined. So in Germany, collectively, you had this huge abraded ego of saying, well, we're taught that Germans are so <laughs> Justin, I, I'm, I realize I'm speaking to someone of German background, but but historians have documented that there was a lot of nationalistic pride. And when that pride was, was violated by the outcome of World War I, that Germany was blamed for it, there became a narrative that said, well, actually, we weren't to blame and that we actually would have won that war, but we were undermined. There was a knife in our back. We were sabotaged by communists and Jews working in Germany. So we didn't really lose. We were, we were tricked out of victory. And that narrative helped fuel some of the, the collective aggression towards Jewish people that was fomented and amplified and 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 escalated by by Trump and his Nazi cronies. So in modern America, you have a lot of pushback against the idea that white people should feel guilty and should feel privileged. So you have people who who adopt that and go, no, that actually makes sense. History and what I know of history makes me understand that I have privilege and that um, I have advantages people, other people might not have and I have levels of security that other people might not have.
but we have to work out a way how to function with that, to model it appropriately for the other people who are very afraid that civilization will fall apart if we keep criticizing it, that if we keep criticizing industrialization and saying there's a, a downside in terms of climate change gases being produced and, and creating an existential threat for us, or if we criticize men and say, hey, women are sometimes mistreated and men will say, hey, not all men, and they'll be very resistant to female leadership or to feminist points of view because they don't want to be collectively punished for being men and they don't want boys to be collectively punished for being men. So there's so much work to do to say, how do we functionally use our awareness of oppression or disadvantage? How do we use that to say privilege can be energizing in that it can motivate you to, to be of service and motivate you to be inclusive and to promote understanding. And there's so much work to do for us, for white people to just try and find a way to live that um, and, and to show how you can still be functional in society and the worst fears of conservative people don't need to come true. So to acknowledge those fears and, and either show, discount them and say that they're, they're not necessarily valid, but also prove that they're not valid by showing how you can be not depressed but still concerned about climate change. You can be conscious of, of white privilege, but not be too constrained to, to get up in the morning and brush your hair and look after yourself because you feel too guilty to do that. It's like, nope, we can still put our best foot forward. Uh, and there's there's lots of ways to, to figure out how to best do that in, a, in an intellectual and emotional framework. So much work. <laughs> That's there, my conclusion. There is so much work. I. It, it, Okay, first of all, we are going to have to have you back on the show again because there is there's no end to the discussion. I I, I I feel like whatever you say, it sparks something to me. And when I say something, of course you have something even more intellectual to offer to everybody to grip on to spurring back and forth. I mean, even as far as that that definitiveness between going back to our conversation on International Women's Day, um, the definitiveness between the male and female representations in, especially in mainstream media, but all media and how we had somebody who was joining in on the conversation in the chats asking, you know, what about the not all men, you know, I, I, I am not somebody who assimilates with or identifies with the actions that are being taken that um, do put women in that corner. And I do stand up at work and try to say, you know, fight for equal pay and such. And it, it really is a lot more work about breaking down those barriers, not accepting labels necessarily, but being inclusive, like you were saying, opening up the grounds to have voices heard. I think that I said on that show earlier that I think that everybody wants to be, um, understood and respected and loved. And the fact that that commenter was just asking, what can I do? That is what you do. You acknowledge where you're at and you ask how you can grow. It doesn't matter who you are. And especially these days where we are not definitive and black and white in terms of gender, we don't just exist as men and women. That is a conversation that is shifting and now being more inclusive to those who don't identify with that, those binary terms. Uh, I, like I said, 
we're definitely going to have to have you. I'm back, baby. I'll be coming back. I'll be talking about pioneering, how we are pioneering ways of moving and existing in the world. And every time you, you be a pioneer, you're crossing unknown territory. I mean, parents have been asked to be pioneers to move away from disciplinary methods of the past. And men and women are being asked to pioneer different ways of, of coexisting in a dynamic of, of gender relationships and, and, and gendered ways of being. So whenever you pioneer, you expose yourself to the risk of running out of rations on a new field. There's just always pitfalls. And to accept that and embrace it is uh, one way to bring more people on board with us because it's all about critical masses of people who are then able to achieve growth and inclusive political outcomes and better ways of caring for each other and supporting each other, not just making noise about our ideals, but actually um, actually opening up the world to, to more effectively care for the people who live, who live here. Yeah, uh, wait, I, I want to say 18 million more things. I won't because of the time. And because we told you that we were going to just speak for an hour, um, and, and then Kaylee got confused with daylight savings time. But, <laughs> but we do want to, especially because we have so many people still joining in on the chats here, I, I would love to have their input with our fun games that we have set up with the two truths and a lie. Uh, do you want to read them out or do you want to have us read your two truths and a lie? You can read them. So Dav says that she, A, has seven siblings, B, is a qualified speech pathologist, and C, jumped out of a plane. Um, I, I actually had to rack my brains a little bit, uh, especially because, you know, I feel like I know you even better now, but uh, I first met you as this shy girl who wasn't saying anything <laughs> on the first platform I met you on. Um, and that has quickly come to be a reversal. Um, our first guest just came in from our chats here. Molly B says, B, that the lie is that you are a qualified speech pathologist. Uh, and again, oh, somebody says A, B, and C are all true. That's their guess. So maybe you're pulling a fast one on us. <laughs> uh, I'll read them again one more time. A, she has seven siblings. B, she is a qualified speech pathologist. And C, she has jumped out of a plane. Justin, do you want to guess before I throw my guess out? I mean, I feel like I should probably go with some of the people in the chat because they know Dav a lot better than I do, but I'm going to guess C, that you have not jumped out of a plane. Okay. And What's your guess, Kaylee? <laughs> I, oh, okay. I am going to guess a, you don't have seven siblings because I feel like now having met you and the way that you speak, <laughs> how eloquently you speak, I feel like you could school anybody as far as speech pathology goes. And I, I would not hold, I, I would not put it past you that you have jumped out. I want to jump out of planes. And so I just feel like because you are now this mentor to me, you must have already jumped out of planes. 
<laughs> I have jumped out of a plane. Damn it. Uh. <laughs> and this is like, I, I am the daughter of a pilot. I feel slightly ashamed. I should Seven have been. Seven siblings? Your poor mother. No, 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 no. I said, what's the lion? I've jumped out of a plane and I'm a qualified speech pathologist. Uh, I have got a master's degree and my husband has seven siblings, not me. <laughs> there we go. Oh, so there is a little bit of a trick in there still. <laughs> those must be um, a lot. Of, those must be very big family gatherings outside of COVID times. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they've all had children now. So it's like outside of COVID times, it's it's like a, yeah, a preschool. Wow. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay. We have another little fun uh, tidbit that we do in every episode called One Cool Thing. Uh, oh, we still have people guessing. Oh, no, I think C is the answer. <laughs> it's just a lag. I love that Bob says, yep, Dav has many times said, I'm just going to talk for a short time and two hours later. <laughs> Very true. I'll come to that. This yep, is why you're a cool sister of mine. I I, I do the same thing. I'm like, Justin, can you do five minutes? Can we just hop on a call quickly? And then an hour later, he's like, Kaylee, I had a life today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to our next segment of One Cool Thing. And we put it out there as something that can, it can literally be anything. We have had some people even just say sleeping, which whew, is the best. Talk about <laughs> not pushing yourself and accepting where you are. I definitely took a nap before my run and I thought that I wasn't even going to make it to the run, but I accepted myself and I had that nap and it gave me <laughs> the, the compassion for myself to then find the energy to the run. So uh, yeah, we put it out there as literally anything that can be actionable for yourself. It can be something that people can do for their own mental health. It can be an organization that people can support. Uh, anything, a cool app. I, I, I do, I actually changed mine halfway through today. Uh, Dav, what's your one cool thing that you shared with us? I, I shared self-compassion as a thing, as a thing, because it's, so easy to get caught up in being judgmental towards others but when we when we get kind of stuck on that emotional energy sometimes it can lead to harshness towards ourselves because the brain does not want us to be a hypocrite so when you are feeling very critical and your criticisms can be very logical and well-founded but but be aware that if you're engaging in lots of critical energy out into the world to make sure you find something to be compassionate about to others so that you can also remember to be compassionate towards yourself uh, because that's a practice that you need to be a little bit conscious of because people can be very judgmental and harsh to themselves which impedes their ability to act functionally in the world to be a supportive co-member of society and then we are all interconnected no matter how much we sometimes feel we've dug ourselves into a little hole or no matter what corner we've gone into our presence in the world is always more critical to other people than we understand in ways that we don't necessarily understand or expect wow that's that's more than just like I I've, my self compassion was taking a nap today. <laughs> <laughs> that's the practice. That's the pragmatics of self compassion. I, yeah. I zoomed out to big picture. <laughs> I love the blue sky analogy, and I think that it is. I mean, um, mine might actually rub a little bit against this, but in a way where because I'm trying to figure out 
a place of compassion for myself in in regards to this, a specific, zooming in, a specific example. My cool thing is uh, something that I did share today. I retweeted an episode of another podcast that I absolutely adore um, called script notes. It's a podcast about screenwritings and uh, screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters run by John August and Craig Mazin. Uh, I've probably spoken about it on this podcast before because I love it. It's also where we stole the one cool thing idea from. But the episode today was talking about opening scenes and it just has me thinking so much about first impressions and um especially with my first impression with you having changed so much from somebody who I thought was a little bit more on the shy side to someone who just has the most gumption to move forward with speech, uh, with her voice and yes, speech as well as the speech pathology. But I retweeted the episode earlier because, um, and I was saying that I, I cannot even admit how unforgiving I am with opening scenes. Uh, and I say that I cannot be, I cannot admit that because I don't think I have the street cred uh, as a screenwriter yet to be able to do that, but I still did admit it because I do have the attitude. Um, but, and look, I'm not trying to Joss weed in any of opening scenes that I've read that I don't love, but the idea of first impressions, whether it is with a story, a film, um, a novel, or with people, what fascinates me is the importance that we place on them and how so much hinges on them. And it has me thinking of you know moments or uh, scenes that it, it, John and Craig say o- opening and final scenes are the ones with which audience members will be the most forgiving. Uh, and I... I even getting through pilot episodes, I've, I've held myself from, you know, I've watched three minutes and I can't even commit to getting through a full pilot episode, uh, admittedly, for too many shows, granted even a plethora of films, be it feature or short. But this also had me thinking about how we form our opinions about people, not only upon our first meetings, but how much more that... Um, how much more challenging it can be to shift our opinions of somebody once you have developed such a relationship with them, the more context that is given throughout the story. And uh, I mean, context is necessary, but that's why we come with all of our baggage. That's why we come with all of our histories that we have to unlearn. Uh, And maybe that is moving a little bit more into the the blue sky territory, uh, the more of a grander narrative that even nations take on and that identification with kind of hearkening back to, you know, war times fighting because you identify with the flag, because you identify with your nation, you are fighting for ideologies or for an idea, a notion of a nation. Um, Hamilton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is a, see, this is why we need to have you back on again, because this is something that we would have loved to share as well. Another topic I think that you, you want to do it, a Hamilton duet sometime. Uh, I know you sing. The words. Yes. Uh, we're going to have to find a platform that allows for duets. Did I try to sing on the plot when we. You did. And it was just by yourself. So that was okay. Because a duet wouldn't work. We realized that because of lag. And yeah, you didn't realize any connection with me, but I was listening and I was like, if I ever want to ask Kaylee to do a duet, it won't yet be possible, but one day. Okay, so we're putting it out there. I think I saw some of the app developers uh, 
in the chat earlier today. Maybe they're still there. This is our cry for whatever it, I don't know how the tech works. So I think this is a big ask, but whatever the capability is to have duets, to have karaoke on here, because that's what I want. I want more karaoke with Dav. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it. I would be so honored. <laughs> You're a better singer, but I, I have, <laughs> I have heart <laughs> and I have the understanding that I don't need to condemn people anymore as bad singers or good singers. I say some people are more rehearsed and more trained. And that allows me to aspire to joining the ranks of the better singers because I'm more committed now to practicing and training because my audience indulged me by letting me sing as a stress release, self-compassion measure in the lead up to the election. I would just sing Hamilton songs because I'd just fallen in love with it. And it was very apropos to the energy of that moment of going, we need to, to fight for this society and this nation. Uh, but I wanted to say something about compassion, which I was thinking of when you were talking about opening scenes and final scenes, which I'm drawing from a thread I saw on Twitter from an Arabic commentator who said, if I met myself two years ago, I could talk to myself and probably have a civil conversation. We'd disagree. But if I met myself from five years ago, then we would probably not even be able to talk and we could conceivably come to blows. And that was how much he'd changed over five years. And I was like, what a powerful way to consider it as a tool to help us be compassionate to ourselves and other people. Even if we don't like ourselves now, our opinion might change later on. Next week, we might be like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Because just imagine that gulf between who we are today and who we were five, ten, two years ago. We're not the same people. We won't always agree, even with our own selves, but we can still live with ourselves. And that understanding should help us be more tolerant for people who we don't agree with in this present moment as well. That we are all on our own journeys and maybe we can offer something to someone on their journey or maybe we can learn something from them, but we shouldn't all expect to either agree or to be angry about not agreeing. Oh, I could say so much more on that, but I'm, I'm going to throw the mic over to Justin so you can say your one cool thing. And also because we will keep you here forever if I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so Good discipline, Kate. Cool I know, right? I'm usually <laughs> the one like frantically being like, time, we got to watch the time. Oh my God, we're going to be three hours on a podcast. They're going to hate us. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my fun job, guys. <laughs> my one cool thing was going to be onesies because I'm wearing a onesie because where we are right now, where Kelly and I are, it is late, late night. Um, and time Thank you time for changes. staying up yeah, for me. So. Thank you. Oh, it's totally fine. It's so sad because of COVID. I go to bed at like 8 p.m. now. It's insane. But uh, in the conversation, I'm actually going to change my one cool thing to a program called the March of Remembrance and Hope, which is a Canadian organization run by a Jewish foundation. And they actually take college and university students um, through Germany and Poland uh, to view important sites in the Holocaust uh, with an actual Holocaust survivor. Uh, I did it myself. I did it with some roommates. It was absolutely amazing and a phenomenal experience. And if anyone wants more information on that, you should definitely check it out because it is insanely life-changing. Just walking around the camps with someone who was at that camp is something insane. And hearing about your grandmother's story definitely brought me back to that. So that's my one cool thing for today, guys. That is such a cool thing. 
Thank you for sharing. We're going to have all of this in the show notes that you can check out. And uh, we'll definitely have all of Dav's links to where you can see more from her on her social media and her shows. Uh, and somebody just said Kaylee Hokey. Kaylee oh, Hokey. If, 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 there, if that develops, oh, make a whole new app just dedicated to Kaylee's karaoke. Oh, boy. That's a monster <laughs> waiting to be unleashed. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, for thank getting you so much, Dan. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. We will see you again, I'm sure, on another episode. And you guys can keep commenting, I realized, on our threads on here. So let all the comments keep happening and we'll try to get back to you. Have a great morning, day, night. <laughs> Who knows? If I you're want to say bye to Molly. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. I just think bye to Molly and Bob and Kimchi and John and anybody who uh, came over and because I haven't been engaging with the comments as much as I usually would because this is not my broadcast. I've had Justin and Kaylee to engage with, but I will next time, I promise. <laughs> and lovely to see you all. For anyone listening to this as a podcast, if you want to join the conversation, head to anchor.fm slash WTNOK, and you can actually send voice notes that we can have Dav reply to or anything like that. If you want to catch us live, you can check us out on HAPS, which is H-A-P-P-S dot TV. Um, you can find myself and Kaylee and Cat uh, or Dav is there as well. I'm saying Dav because you're, or Cat. I'm getting tongue-tied now. Guys, it's way past my bedtime. This is what happens when I At don't sleep. At least you're sleep. pre-dressed. You're pre-dressed. Yeah, yeah, pre-dressed. I'm ready. I'm literally just going to flop into my bed, and it's going to be done. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys for stopping by, and that is it for today. Sweet dreams, y'all. Sweet dreams. Thank you, guys. So if you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave us a rating or review, which sincerely helps us and we absolutely love. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and send us your questions, recommendations, and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay, but that's okay. <laughs>